Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce cost and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash strange. netsuite.com slash strange. netsuite.com slash strange. I'm Laura Norton, and this is One Strange Thing, the show where we search the nation's news archives for stories that can't quite be explained. Today we're on a trip to the land of moose and lobsters and blueberries. We're taking you back to the state with the fewest syllables, the place where our first episode began. Yes, welcome back, strangers, to Maine. This time, we're visiting a northern corner of the state. Basically Canada, give or take a Tim Horton or two. And today, we're specifically concerned with an area around the Allagash River and the vast wilderness it runs through. According to the Bangor Daily News, many have used this river as a means for some serious canoe-based camping trips. And we can't say that we at One Strange Thing are big on that concept, to be honest. But if you must absolutely subject yourself to such a thing, the Allagash seems like a great place to do it. Certainly picturesque and none of that whitewater rapids we hope you like almost drowning nonsense. Out on the Allagash, it's just you, your companions, the water, and whatever else might be enjoying the scenery with you. We assume that whatever else wasn't much of a concern for the four men who set out on a canoe trip on the Allagash Waterway on August 20th, 1976. After all, twin brothers Jack and Jim Weiner, Charlie Fultz, and Chuck Rack were all friends, attending art school in Boston. They were likely looking for an escape from city life at the start of the fall semester. What we know now of how their trip transpired is largely thanks to later articles and documentaries and a 1993 book by one Raymond Fowler, which was called The Allagash Abductions. It's a scintillating title, we know. We'll get back to that in a minute. But anyway, our story begins like this. On August 20th, 1976, the four young men left for a two-week-long trip through the wilds of Maine. They started like any outdoorsy masochist would, by summiting a mountain. 
And after that multi-day nightmare, um, <clears throat> adventure, they chartered a plane and flew to the Allagash River. There, they planned to canoe and camp along the river itself, exploring the various lakes it connected for the rest of their trip. According to the Bangor Daily News, it was their second night out on the water when things began to get, you guessed it, weird. As they settled down on shore for evening, the men noticed what they thought was a star in the east, shining far, far brighter than all the others. Jim, one of the twins, who'd come prepared with binoculars, gave the star a closer look and determined that, no, actually, it wasn't a star, but some kind of round, lit-up object hovering some 200 feet above the trees. The friends watched it glisten for what seemed to be about half a minute. Then, it blinked out. Weird, but not like scary weird. They wrote it off, eventually went to sleep, and by morning had all but forgotten about it. Per the Bangor Daily News, the next day's outdoorsy activities proceeded without any kind of incident. And on the following day, August 26, 1976, nothing to write home about either. Not until Jack, Jim, Chuck, and Charlie set up camp for that evening on the shores of Eagle Lake. According to the Bangor Daily News, they built a huge bonfire that night, tall and bright, warm and large enough to see from a decent distance. It would serve as a beacon so they could see the campsite from the water, important as they had decided to set off for some night fishing. Per the Battlebro Informer, it was when the canoe got about a quarter of a mile offshore that something seemed wrong. More specifically, one of the friends, it was Chuck, felt like they were being watched. And it would seem that Chuck was right. According to the Bangor Daily News, as the men gazed back across the lake toward their camp, they were greeted with a huge, pulsing sphere of colorful light. Red, then white, then green, the colors melding together so as to be almost indistinguishable. As they'd later tell the Portland Press Herald, this light was as big as a two-story house, maybe 80 feet across and hovering 200 to 300 feet above the water. Now Charlie, he was a Navy veteran, so he'd presumably seen some things. Perhaps that's why his logical brain kicked in. He quickly determined that the sphere was neither an illusion of swamp gas nor a weather balloon. So... To get the sphere's attention, Charlie grabbed his flashlight and flicked the switch back and forth. Short, short, short. Long, long, long. Short, short, short. He was spelling SOS in Morse code as a maritime invitation of sorts. Would the light recognize his call? Well, whether the sphere of light knew what this meant and wanted to help, or do the opposite of help, is unclear, but it wanted to do something, apparently, because, according to the Bangor Daily News, it zoomed in closer to the canoe. Now, the sphere, which, again, was the size of a house, was just 50 feet above them and a few hundred yards away. From somewhere on its bottom half, it emitted a cone of white light and began slowly scanning the water. It was searching. 
And with that new terrifying development, the fishing trip was abandoned. Smart thinking. Two of the men paddled the canoe back to shore, while the other two attempted to help by splashing and scooping water out with their hands. Here's what happened next. As far as the four would be able to recall in the decade or so that came after, the canoe outpaced the searchlight and eventually ran ashore. The friends stumbled out onto the beach, whipping their heads around to look for the light. One of the twins, Jim Wiener, would later tell the Portland Press-Herald, We got out of the canoe and we stood there, and it was just right in front of us on the water. I remember standing there and looking at this thing and thinking if I had a stone or a fair-sized rock, I could hit it. That's how close it was. But the sphere of light didn't stay in striking distance for long. After a few beats, it rocketed away from the shore toward the mountains and it blipped out, as it done two nights before, into the stars. The four friends presumably booked it away from the shore and back to their campsite. It was likely a more difficult sprint to safety than it should have been because their beacon, the bonfire, had burned out, leaving only orange embers. It was almost as though hours had passed, rather than the 15 minutes or so that they reported. Strange. Somehow, our protagonists crashed hard and slept through the night and the shock. They discussed the light in the morning, not sure what they'd seen or how close they'd come to who knows what fate. According to Raymond Fowler's book, they spent six more days in the main wilderness and finished up their trip. And then they went home. But they mulled it over among each other for a long time describing what they'd seen to bemused and even disbelieving family members. According to the Bangor Daily News, Jack, one of the twins, he didn't blame anyone for their skepticism. He said, This was the 1970s, so the reaction from others was to ask what we were smoking, drinking, or dropping. It's hard for people to understand, but I don't blame them. If someone told me a story like that, I'd say, show me a picture. Give me some physical evidence. And, of course, there was no physical evidence to be had. Eventually, the story faded, life unfolded, and provided myriad distractions. The four finished art school and started careers. According to the Bangor Daily News, Jack worked for a company that made contact lenses, and Jim instructed computer arts in Boston. Charlie became a medical illustrator, and Chuck was also an illustrator and a caricature artist at malls. They became husbands and fathers. They had other things to think about. But that's not to say that they stopped thinking about UFOs. According to the Tampa Bay Times, Jim, he attended UFO conferences, digging around for some evidence that someone else had seen what he and his friends had seen. It was at one of those conferences that he met one Raymond Fowler in 1988. At the time, Raymond Fowler was a big name in the UFO world. According to a bio on the now-defunct CrowdedSkies.com website, Raymond had spent decades in government service, a tour with the Air Force, and then 25 years in defense contracting. He'd been the early warning coordinator on an Air Force study of UFOs concerning what we should do if they decide to, uh go all Mars attacks on us. When he met Jim Wiener, 
Fowler was the director of international investigations for an organization we've mentioned before, the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON. And he'd written four books on UFO sightings and alien abductees by the time he met Jim. Now, bear in mind, Jim and his friends hadn't gotten any press coverage at this point because their story was so outlandish. It was only through speaking with Jim that Raymond Fowler heard all about this, and, perhaps unsurprisingly, he was very interested. Because how could you not be? So Raymond Fowler got in touch with all four men and asked if they'd be willing to undergo a little hypnotic regression to see if they could remember anything further about what they'd seen. All four men agreed. According to a 1990 literature review in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry, there's more than a century of academic interest in hypnosis as therapy for trauma. It's possible that the Allagash Four were thinking this way. Maybe this UFO guy, even with a presumptive bias toward the otherworldly, could help them remember enough of the night to make sense of it all. That might have been the best possible outcome, actually. But if you're hoping for a neat resolution to this story, we have bad news about what kind of show you're listening to right now. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Have you ever wondered what it feels like to be attacked by an alligator? Or what goes through one's mind as they're stranded in a snowstorm? What Was That Like is the podcast for you. Real people come on every episode to explain the unbelievable situations they've been through. Guests share how they really felt during their most surreal experiences. They tell us what they did the morning before an earthquake, how it feels to win The Price is Right, and all sorts of details that you'd never learn anywhere else. If you're interested in hearing disturbing and inspiring firsthand stories, What Was That Like is the podcast you've been looking for. Every story is thoroughly researched and fact-checked, so you know that even the most unrealistic are someone's reality. Listen to What Was That Like wherever you get your podcasts. A lot more information did come to light as the Allagash Four underwent hypnotic information regression in 1989. But how objectively true that information was? Well, take a listen, and maybe you can tell us. In individual sessions with Fowler and a professional hypnotist, the four men independently came to the conclusion that they had not, in fact, escaped the tractor beam. Instead, they'd been swept up in it. And so, without further ado, a synopsis of events as told to Fowler during the hypnosis sessions and transcribed in his book. In subsequent years, these details have remained mostly consistent when the men speak to journalists. As reported by the Bangor Daily News, Jim, Jack, Charlie, and Chuck all recalled being in their canoe one minute, and the next, they were trapped in dark tubes. The only thing visible was sparkling dust, almost like the finest glitter, drifting through the air. The four were sucked up through that tube into what looked like the coldest, most sterile-looking hospital 
from a hellish parallel dimension, and they weren't alone. Under hypnosis, Jim described their attendants as like bugs, or more specifically, per Fowler's transcript, they've got bug eyes. Fowler claimed that each man drew the same sketch of their captors, give or take a few of the finer details. Thin humanoid figures in bodysuits. Huge, oval-shaped black eyes on small heads. A mouth more like a beak. Necks spindly with hanging skin. Long arms and four fingers, but no thumbs. And apparently, these creatures were also gifted with telepathy, and they ordered the men to strip naked and submit themselves to examination. In what felt like a fugue-like state, there wasn't much the four could do to protest. It was almost as though they were anesthetized. They couldn't move, speak, or reach for each other. Per the Bangor Daily News, Jim recalled watching the beings touch his brother Jack with their graceful, terrifying fingers, examining his eyes, his toes, his leg hairs, his everything else. And somehow, that wasn't even the worst of it. The men remembered pain as the creatures prodded and twisted their limbs. Chuck recalled seeing a silver contraption placed on Charlie's chest and, and a tube rammed into, through his ribs. As Jim would later describe to the Portland Press Herald, if you or I were animal behaviorists and we darted a polar bear and wanted to measure its teeth, see how its jaw moved, take some blood samples, see how its limbs articulate, what's that orifice, what's this orifice, how does this work, that's how we were treated. Eventually, their captors finished with whatever process they were carrying out. The men were whisked out of the hospital like confines and beamed back down, back to the canoe. As if dragged along by some invisible string, the canoe glided back ashore, the limp-bodied men struggling to regain command of their limbs. And only then, as they'd all remembered before, did they stand on the shore and watch that sphere of light disappear over the mountains and into the sky. So, you know... All this new information was a less-than-ideal development all around. Unless, we guess, you were writing a book on the subject. It took Raymond Fowler three-odd years to finish The Allagash Abductions, Undeniable Evidence of Alien Intervention, once the hypnotic regressions were finally done. As we'll discuss in a moment, the release of Fowler's book opened the floodgates of notoriety for these men, at least in ufologist circles, and for a time they were famous, or at least close to it. According to the Tampa Bay Times, the four made appearances at UFO conferences in Florida, autographing copies of the book. And per the Tennessean, Raymond Fowler made an appearance on Beyond Reason, a Nashville paranormal radio program. And... We're excited about this ourselves. For perhaps the first and last time in known history, an art school education came in handy. The New York Daily News reported that in 1996, Chuck Rack had painted scenes from his own abduction, and those paintings were on display at a wildly popular UFO-themed exhibition at a trendy art gallery in Soho. 
Obviously, it's a difficult story for the news cycle, for tabloids and talk shows to resist. A group of respectable men leading boring lives who'd had a single, unexplainable incident in their youths. Just enough of a scientific approach to feel indisputable. A once-in-a-lifetime brush with the bizarre that changed their lives. Actually, scratch that last part. Bizarre, yes. Changed lives. For the Allagash 4, absolutely. But once in a lifetime, it might have been. Except for one strange thing. Perhaps they hadn't actually led the most boring lives after all, or only had a single, unexplainable experience. Because as their stories unfurled at the national level, it turned out that each man's tales of otherworldly encounters stretched back further than that fateful night in the Maine woods, which, in turn, made them each a little less steadfast and reasonable. In fact, all but one of the Allagash Four said they'd encountered aliens before that night on the lake. For instance, Chuck Rack remembered a presence, abstract and otherworldly, in his childhood bedroom one night. And according to the Bangor Daily News, twins Jim and Jack, they recalled a presence they'd nicknamed Harry the Ghost, visiting their shared bedroom when they were boys. And Jack had even encountered something not that long before the abduction had occurred. In the early 1970s, he said, he'd apparently seen a flying saucer gliding through the Vermont countryside. Why he held off mentioning it until then, we're unsure. As he told the Bangor Daily News with the air of someone who'd caught a deer munching on their backyard grass, twice I've seen a UFO at the bottom of my driveway. We have to ask, why did these additions come? To reinforce what happened at the lake? Were aliens keeping tabs on them somehow? Were the Fora worried that their abduction tale was getting stale? Was it all true? We don't know, but it seemed to work in their favor because their abduction was featured on Unsolved Mysteries in 1994, the year after the book came out, and it was shown on news shows in the U.S. and Japan. The men even appeared on the Joan Rivers show, and if any of you happen to have that episode taped and collecting dust in that box of VHS tapes in your attic, please, get in touch, because we're dying to see that. But with all that exposure, the stories upon stories, the addition upon addition, something was bound to turn sour. And in this case, it was one of the four recanting the story that they pitched to the world. We don't know exactly what changed for Chuck Rack, but for whatever reason, he suddenly broke with a narrative that he'd been following for years. In 1998, he told the Bangor Daily News that he wasn't even sure that the abduction story he'd been telling all along was true. He suspected that his recollections of the probing and the prodding aboard the ship were the result of pre-hypnotic suggestion. Juxtaposed with Jack, Jim, and Charlie's absolute earnestness and certainty about what happened to them, this was a jarring development, to say the least. And years later, Chuck still seemed to be the group's token killjoy, or at least the one who was willing to do so publicly. 
Actually, he'd gotten bolder. He told the Fiddlehead Focus in 2016 that, as the 90s ended, he'd purposely stepped aside from any news stories and adaptations of the Allagash abductions. Why? Well, Chuck told the Focus that he'd lied to the public. He didn't remember ever being abducted or poked or prodded by alien beings, and he didn't think any of his friends did either. To hear Chuck tell it, everything that happened after they saw the sphere of light on the lake had been an elaborate hoax, crafted by the four of them when it became clear that there was money to be made. Chuck told the focus, We were compelled to stay together, all speculating that this thing could go into the millions of dollars for each of us. But, alas, the market for I-got-probed stories was less lucrative than they'd hoped. The men didn't make much, if any, money. Chuck broke off from the group. And the Allagash 3 didn't much seem to mind. The close-knit group of friends that had shared the canoe with Chuck turned on him in the press. Charlie Foltz told the focus that Chuck was a loose cannon, prone to violent anger, and that he'd been banned from UFO conventions. And Jim Weiner added in the same article, I personally believe that Mr. Rack's self-aggrandizing rationalization and disparaging accusations are simply the rantings of an angry and resentful individual on whom his former friends have turned their backs. Jim explained that Chuck had actually proposed a get-rich-quick scheme to his friends after the Joan Rivers interview. What if the four were to turn on Raymond Fowler and the UFO community and say they were being exploited? The controversy would be entertainment gold, Chuck thought, but Jack, Jim, and Charlie refused to participate. So, Jim reasoned, Chuck had changed tactics, and his line became that the whole abduction was malarkey. The group was permanently fractured, and in any case, they'd all continued not getting rich. Whatever money they'd made on TV appearances ran out, and the bookings stopped coming. The Bangor Daily News reported in the 90s that a TV movie based on the alleged abductions was in the works, but as far as we can tell, it never panned out. Here's the thing, though. Even now, on shaky speaking terms, the Allagash Four do agree on the events of 1976, to a point. They saw something unexplainable on the lake that night in the canoe, that massive, colorful globe of light drifting above the water. Chuck Rack, for all his pointed skepticism, he still called it a spacecraft as recently as 2016. Besides the usual establishment answers we've told you about before, a weather balloon, a spotlight, swamp gas, there's never been an earthly explanation for what these men all agree they saw that night on the lake. You'd think that that, and the healing balm of time, would be enough to repair any rift. After all, any brush with the extraterrestrial makes these men more alike than they are different. And to be fair, Charlie, Chuck, Jack, and Jim have all met the same fate anyway. As far as we know, they're all still alive, but the public eye invariably turns to the next shiny weird thing, and it seems the Allagash Four have faded comfortably into obscurity. In fact, if you give Allagash Four a Google nowadays, 
you're just as likely to come across a four times fermented ale from the Allagash Brewing Company as you are any tales of the otherworldly. If the beer is named for the abductees, it's a sideways kind of reference, and perhaps not a selling point. Maybe Charlie, Chuck, Jack, and Jim would appreciate that acknowledgement. Then again, maybe they've had enough of that kind of fame. We hope you'll join us next time for another real-life story from the fine print of America's local papers, from the lives of regular people, just like you and me, except for one strange thing. Oh, and strangers. One Strange Thing is an entirely independent production. To support the show and hear more of the entirely true and enticingly peculiar, join us over on Patreon. There you'll get ad-free releases of our regular episodes, full-length bonus episodes, live streams, and plenty of other fun content, all for $5 a month. We hope you'll check it out. There's a link in our show notes. Thank you.